You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, we are talking about Pentecostalism as mysticism. And maybe we should take a minute to unpack that. But before we do that, we're going to be talking uh, today, just to give you a heads up, with Jonathan Martin, who's pastor at The Table OKC. And as in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City, right? Yeah, the table. Oklahoma that's not like, City. That's like a you know a fried chicken place, right? O- okay, so, see, yeah. Yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So maybe uh, Pete, why don't you unpack a little bit of what do we mean with these big words, Pentecostalism as mysticism? Well, I mean that's even a question I had to ask him about what Pentecostalism is, but you know it's 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 a movement that is, as I think a lot of people probably know, just having friends and being in church that is really driven by the centrality of the Holy Spirit and not that like doctrines are unimportant, all churches have doctrines, but it's very experiential. And there was, you know, as we kept talking and then Jonathan came out and pretty much made this connection that I had never thought of before, how mysticism and Pentecostalism have a lot in common. And in fact, his own movement towards a more mystical, liturgical, sacramental way of being Christian that stage was set for him in his Pentecostal movement, as opposed to, Jared, like, I mean, coming from, let's say, a Reformed or Calvinist uh, setting or, you know, a Baptist setting, for example, like, it's hard to make that move to mysticism. But, you know, in those traditions, at least in my, my experience, I think yours too, probably, Pete, where experience was downplayed. In right. fact, you can't trust your experience. Right. And so kind of on opposite ends of the continuum with these experiential or liturgical mystical practices and Pentecostalism. Yeah. And, and the spirit, I mean, th- this is a little bit of a, of a caricature, but the the spirit, what the spirit really did was inspire the Bible. And that was it in, and, in those traditions. Yeah, yeah. May, maybe not completely it, but it was a big it. It was like 90% it. I mean... Well, we were taught what was called cessationism, which really yes. just basically means that the the Spirit's work has has ceased. It's hanging out someplace. Yeah, the done. Spirit is hanging out. And, yeah, I, I just... I remember... Oh, you know, I remember in chapel at where the place that should not be named, where I taught, and you, we were both students at one point. But I remember a, a speaker praying before a chapel service and basically calling upon the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, what is he doing? Like, do we do that in church? It's like, and oh, goodness gracious, there are like liturgical traditions that that's, you know, that's, that's the whole point. Right. You know, and so that's why it's really refreshing to talk with Jonathan. He is a great guy. He's, you know, really articulate and a lot of passion, and he's got a lot of wisdom to share with all of us, I think. And, and I just kept thinking all the way through, man, I just know people who need to hear this. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let him hear it. Uh, you know, I feel like that so often we hit some kind of a crisis where it's just not possible to cling to the God that we knew before. And it typically happens in form of some kind of a crisis, you know. I walk through my own dark night of the soul, and I feel like in some ways... Being flat on my back opened me up to God in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise been open. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much, my friend. It really is an honor to be with you guys. It is, isn't it? It, it actually is. No, it seriously is. We keep telling is. people that, but people say, no, it's not. But I think it is. Yeah, people say, We're, I'm in the twilight of my career, and it's the only thing I could get. <laughs> but we keep telling them it's an honor. <laughs> I didn't have enough of a career to even have a twilight. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there's, even a, there's not even a real descent. Oh, so you're, you're like in Alaska, where it's just kind of hazy all the time. There's no real sunrise or yes. like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, Jonathan, tell tell the people where you're at at this moment, because you you moved not too long ago, like physically. You mean. Yeah, physically where you yeah. are right. So not existentially, as some sort of like, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get to later. that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Believe me. Yeah. So, so right. um, I am in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I just moved a few months ago, um, about four months ago, actually. Um, I'm in the process of starting a new faith community here called the Table which has been, you know, really exciting and terrifying at the same time. I feel like mm-hmm. 2019 is a uniquely weird time to start anything remotely like a church. But it's a beautiful community of people. And I felt like, you know, I planted a church before in North Carolina where I'm from and felt like I had one more adventure like that in me. And um, yeah, so I came to Oklahoma City to do this and learning a lot and it's going okay it actually is you yeah. know it is it, it's it's going it's a really um diverse eclectic really extraordinary kind of core group of people i get to work with my teaching pastor uh, cc jones davis she's phenomenal we're trading off on preaching responsibility so the team's really special and that really drew me here because i feel like it's kind of the character of the community is so unique in some ways i felt like it's you know it's the kind of people i've always dreamed of doing this with so i kind of had the sense of like I don't even care exactly what we build. I know these are the people I'd want to build with. And um, mm-hmm. so whatever it looks like, that's fine. I just want to be around these folks. Right. And, and I guess getting to this point, you started somewhere, and it's been a series of transitions and changes and shifts and things like that. So so why, why don't, let's talk about your your upbringing and how you were raised in the faith and you know, the denomination and all that kind of stuff, and, and just what your experience was. I'm assuming as uh, your father was a preacher. That's right. Right. So so you grew up in the church, and, and you know, what that was like for you, and, and uh, you know, just, just how you started moving along on that journey of faith as, as a young person. My father's a minister. My grandfather, who's been gone for a long time, was a minister, all in the Pentecostal tradition, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, in particular, which I always joke about us being the hillbilly Pentecostals. Like, we're not the cool ones. We're more like um, 
we all come from Azusa Street, sort of, but we're a little bit like less Azusa Street revival and more like the white people that freaked out in a barn kind of Pentecostals, you know? <laughs> well, explain that. Before you go on, explain Azusa Street, because not everybody might, if you're not familiar with the Pentecostal movement, you might not know what So the Azusa Street revival was in 1906, and William Seymour, one-eyed son of a slave, is preaching in kind of a rundown shack. And people begin to have these powerful supernatural experiences of the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues, and um, women are preaching, and um, you have to keep in mind, too, the era. This is, you know, 50 years before uh, civil rights movement and all of that, but it's incredibly multi-ethnic, and a movement that kind of sweeps the world. That's considered really the the start of the Pentecostal movement. But around the same time as Azusa Street, there was kind of in the hills, kind of the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee, there was also a sort of a more rural version of that Pentecostal revival taking place, uh, which is more what the Church of God came out of. So there, there were some sort of loose connections to the Azusa Street revival, but uh, again, a little more rural, a little more southeastern in character than what happened at Azusa so Street. So where, where is Azusa Street? Azusa Street's in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, right. So, uh, so and again, just preliminary like definitions, because I know that I use these terms interchangeably, but I, I probably that's not true, but Pentecostal and charismatic. What's the difference between those? Yeah, you know, it just depends on how broad or, or kind of fine you're talking, because sometimes I'll use the terms interchangeably. Um, the, the technical distinction would be... Well, which one eats the live animals? That's the one that I'm trying to figure <laughs> out. That would be us. Oh, okay, um, good. <laughs> uh, we were the... No, no um, like, so the uh, kind of classical Pentecostals, as we would say, more are kind of the direct products of, of Azusa Street, this revival that takes place in the early 1900s, whereas the charismatic renewal was really more... Um, Something that happened in the 60s and 70s, more kind of in Catholic and mainline churches, where there also was kind of this awakening sort of to the gifts of the Spirit. People were speaking in tongues. People were interested in healing, that kind of thing. But the charismatic movement proper really was more kind of a Catholic and mainline church phenomenon. Um, that's kind of the more technical distinction. Now, I feel like, though, a lot of times people will use the terms interchangeably. But really, it's kind of it's it's more a, a kind of a question of origin, like the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, um, you know, the Four Square Movement. All of those were Pentecostal movements that kind of come out of these earlier revivals. Whereas the Charismatic Movement really was kind of a renewal movement within. Uh, w- within non-Pentecostal churches, yeah, that's all. You know, I, I would have grown up charismatic in um, in Texas, and that would have been the distinction that that we would have made. Would have been, you know, Pentecostal was a denomination; it was more institutional, and charismatic was uh, across dem- denominations and was more this renewal movement. And um, for those of us that would have been charismatic, like we didn't like institution, we didn't like denomination, and so there was a definitely a hey, we're not Pentecostal because. Of course, we defined ourselves against what we weren't. Um, so it's like, well, we aren't that because that seems more denominational and there's more rules and we're we're not that. So that's how we would have seen it too. Sure. Yeah. So whenever you're, as you're growing up, how would you just tell us a little bit of how you would have seen the Bible or approached the Bible within your tradition? How would it have been used or seen or not used? Hmm. Well, I feel like, you know, within the Pentecostal tradition, there's such a emphasis on scripture as uh, it has this very kind of apocalyptic cataclysmic you know every sermon is like 
Moses coming down off of Sinai. And there's an expectation of that sort of thunder and lightning and glory, you know. So, uh, and I, you know, I think there are things about growing up that way that are wonderful and other things, you know, maybe not so much. But I think there's this, definitely this deep sense of reverence for Scripture. I mean, I think the best part of the tradition for me as it relates to Scripture is that, you know, um, there was always such a, a sense of whenever you read Scripture, where you hear it, of God really wanting to address us in real time that, um, you know, that any... And I think in a way that actually is not unlike how, you know, the New Testament writers were reading the Old Testament. You know, every passage has all these layers of meaning and, you know, can come alive in all these different ways, um, in ways I think are quite, you know, faithful to the broader tradition. So that, you know, that's probably what I, what I loved most about it. I mean, I think, you know, on the flip side, I think there really was a kind of terror I had of the Bible. I mean, the, um, I know Phyllis Tribble has that great phrase of text of terror, but I mean, I look like uh, the first passages I can recall memorizing, which I didn't exactly do on purpose, but it was more, I was this afraid of doing something horribly wrong. Like I memorized Jesus' whole passage on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or in Hebrews when it says, if we willfully sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Whole thing about trampling the blood of the Son of God underfoot. I learned that probably before I learned John 3.16 because I was that cautious, you know, about not wanting to be struck down sometimes somehow you know so like that sense of like the holiness of the text and the power of it and this sinai like thing that happens whenever you encounter it was was very real for me yeah and i mean were you conscious of how afraid you were i mean as a child were you thinking like there's something wrong here or was it just the way it is that's a great question i mean i think it was I both was conscious of it, but I don't think I thought there was anything especially wrong with it. I think like especially when you grow up in a world where uh, every moment feels so high stakes. And, you know, by that point, well, I don't think these things are intrinsic to the Pentecostal movement at all. My -hmm. expression of it in the South, there was also plenty of, you know, kind of dispensationalist end times teaching about the rapture and all of that. So, you know, especially when you kind of got all that baggage. I think it seemed perfectly, it seemed like a perfectly normal response to me to be really afraid in light of the things I thought were true. I mean, you know, if you think any given second that Jesus is coming up over the horizon and um, as likely as not, you're going to be left behind uh, to wander the earth until the Antichrist lobs off your head, like in the (laughs) 70s B-movies I saw in church, you know, it Mm -hmm. seemed like a perfectly normal response. So I was conscious of being afraid but I don't think at the time that I thought there was there was something off about that because that was kind of every everybody in my world. So how, maybe you know sometimes uh, Pete and I will talk about and we've had a series on the blog about aha moments where things start to see you start to see the Bible you start to see your faith in a little bit different way. What would you say was maybe a first aha moment where your faith started to shift or develop in a new direction? One of the things that I love most about the Pentecostal tradition is I feel like, you know, there really is this sense that everybody hears from the Holy Spirit and is led by the Holy Spirit and kind of has access to 
the power and presence of God via the text. So it's interesting how many things that I can look back at now, because of course, you know, once I got to seminary and um, reading really good books, there were a lot of things that came to life. But it's interesting now how I can look back. And there are a lot of things that I even read directly in Scripture, where I think like long before I had access to some of these other sources, I really think, you know, there were some of those moments. And I remember reading in Romans 8, you know, if the creation is groaning and sighing and longing for this restoration that's coming, well, how how is it that the whole story is that, you know, God just wants to burn everything down and uh, beam me up, Scotty, we're out of here. And uh, because I spend a lot of time with the Lord's Prayer, like I never could square all the stuff I heard about you know how we're going you know going up man it sure seems like christians have been praying for a long time for god's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven like that sure seems like the kingdom's coming down you know so i think there were moments like that 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 were directly kind of from the text where there were just these suspicions that i think there's something happening here that wasn't quite within the head theological construct that i got in that world um when when was this about how old were you I would say probably in my mid to late teens, probably 16, 17, somewhere in there, yeah. Well, I'm just asking because I know a lot of our listeners, you know, can relate to experiences like that. It's just you sort of read the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) And and you see, at the very least, the diversity that's there, and it's hard to square one thing with the other. So how, I mean, how did you feel at that moment? Like, could you, did you... Talk to anybody about this stuff, or could you, or did you just keep it to yourself? Did you start drinking heavily? What happened? <laughs> I, I would have been way too scared to drink at all, much less to drink heavily <laughs> right, in yeah. those days. You know, I tell you, see, here's the thing, and and this is where I, I feel like sometimes we on the Pentecostal charismatic side of the tracks will sometimes folks will kind of accidentally get things right, even where we don't like mean to. If you're a Pentecostal it really opens the door for you to become a mystic. I mean, that's really what it's about. If there's this emphasis on the centrality of the Holy Spirit and the experience of the Holy Spirit. And so I did find that even while a lot of people I was around in those days, like some of their theology was technically pretty bad. They had a really, they they had an experience with the loving God. And when you sort of listen to their lives, you know, what you got in terms of that witness was very different from maybe some of the things they were talking about when they would pull out their end times chart. So I actually did feel like even among some of those old kind of holiness Pentecostal saints that were pretty stern, uh, there was room to, you know, to ask some questions and to, you know, and and I, I think that what, what kind of drove me batty those, in, in those days is I felt like I would hear these really beautiful demonstrative proclamations of the love of God, but still also, you know, kind of equally... Uh, kind of fire and fire and brimstone, you know, and it was like you just mm-hmm. you never knew what you would get from one day to the next, and there wasn't really an attempt um, to even kind of manage that tension. So it was just weird to sort of live in the middle of that all the time. Yeah, a very like it's like intellectual categories are not as important. It seems like it's it's there's a, the the experience of the spirit, and you sort of just live with these tensions. But you weren't really trying to resolve them. That's right. Okay. That's that's. I mean, just just maybe if you can say a little bit more about something. I've never quite put it this way before in my own mind about how a Pentecostal theology connects to mysticism. That that might make us think a little bit more about 
you know, Pentecostal theology, but explain that a little bit more. What, what, what do you mean by that? I think I get it, but talk more. Help us understand. Yeah, and I love even, uh, Pete, how you kind of teed that up, because I'm thinking, to me, part of what it is to be a Pentecostal, and very much so as I understand it now, but I, I think this is true more broadly. It's much more about a shared experience of the Spirit than it is shared ideas or doctrine. Now, that's not to say, you know, Pentecostals obviously have doctrines, but it's so interesting how, you know, like in a lot of the Pentecostal denominations, Mm -hmm. there's a real emphasis on this as doctrine of speaking in tongues as initial evidence, as in like, you're not filled with Holy Spirit until you speak in tongues. But a lot of that, you know, even within the classical Pentecostal churches, that language doesn't come along till fairly late, you right. know, because I think it, you know, it, the, the movement doesn't start with doctrinal formulation. It starts with people having these experiences of the presence of God, which, you know, I would argue actually is, is not unlike um, in the Orthodox and Catholic and Anglican traditions. You know, I would argue, you know, want to contend now that there, it's still not so much about shared ideas as it is these sacramental practices. I just think like on the Pentecostal side, instead of being shared ideas, it's more these, you know, we have these shared experiences of the Spirit. And if you have this same experience, I mean, I think to put it in terms of the New Testament itself, when you think about Peter in the house of Cornelius, it's like, well, hey, these Gentiles and outsiders are speaking in tongues just like we are. Mm-hmm. How can we say they're not of God? You know, that that's the whole, that, that to me is like, the whole MO of Pentecostalism right there. Well, they're having the same experience we're having. How could we deny the power and presence of God in that? Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And there are, you know, again, I think people can relate to this uh, who, who are listening. Many people can. There are other movements of Christianity, iterations of Christianity that don't start with experience or they don't start with like liturgy and worship, maybe in the Orthodox Church or Episcopal Church or Catholic Church. But they really are rooted in ideas and doctrines, and 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 that's selling short people like Martin Luther or John Calvin. But I, I I certainly think it's the case that in our day and age, much of evangelicalism and fundamentalism, ideas are very very important. That's that becomes rather central in how they see themselves, and so they might look at your experience as a Pentecostal and say. Yeah, but it's got to pass through a certain idea filter first before we can even accept it, and then at the end of the day, we won't. Yes, I, I mm. couldn't agree more. And part, and I tell you, what muddies the wa- uh, the water, especially right now, is that I think historically, and you know, I don't even want to say just historically. I think actually, like now, I personally don't think Pentecostals are evangelical. I mean, like in, in so many ways, we were the ones kicked out of evangelical churches. I don't feel like it, it kind of mm. fits neatly in that grid. However, what we've seen, and I mean, this starts pretty early in the movement. I mean, you could go back as probably as early as like the 30s and the 40s when you start to see this in kind of Pentecostal church history. I think by sheer sort of social location to other kinds of fundamentalists, Pentecostals adapt to fundamentalism a lot. Uh, until now, as often as not, a practicing Pentecostal in a North American church may not look any different from their evangelical neighbor, except maybe they uh, speak in tongues every once in a while or believe in speaking tongues. So it's like basically now being a Pentecostal in North America might mean like, okay, Baptists who speak in tongues. But I think in terms of what Pentecostal spirituality is, it's not that. It's not evangelicalism with Mm -hmm. a little extra zest or with spiritual gifts or something. It is a whole different mode of spirituality. Yeah. Hi, my name is Ben. And I'm Cammie, and we're part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. My favorite episode of The Bible for Normal People was episode 70, where Pete responds to the harmful, polarizing, and dangerous rhetoric used by evangelicals. For me, this is standing up to bullying and defending those that are weak. Supporting this message and others like it is why we chose to become supporters on Patreon. And for as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this important dialogue to others, all for free. This episode, we'd like to specifically thank Denise Howard, Wayne Bartell, John Bennett, Katie Komen, Roseanne Hennessy, Scott Skiles, Jeremy Jones, and David Carlton. We appreciate you. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. Now back to the podcast. Well, yeah, I mean, just tying it to, you know, we had Richard Rohr on the podcast and he talks about the, the, the tricycle of faith and how it rests on these different, different wheels of 
the tradition and the Bible, but ultimately experience is that front wheel. Experience is what drives and what leads. And it actually, it reminds me a little of First John, where he starts uh, that letter, which that which was from the beginning, what we've, ser- what we've seen and what we've heard um, and our hands have touched, that's what we proclaim to you. So it, it seems very experiential. We've experienced this Jesus and that's what we proclaim to you. And I can see how that would be intention in some ways where I would say for a lot of, you know, my tradition, at least growing up in a lot of ways, there was a tension between the Bible uh, because I grew up in the Bible Belt and our experiences and how do we handle it when our experiences aren't matching what we, you know, quote unquote, find in the Bible. So, you know, I don't know if you experienced that tension, but for us, it was basically we have our experiences and then we find a way to find that in the Bible some way and then baptize that as though that's what the Bible really is about. Yeah, very much so. And by the way, and I have to say, like, I love that you brought up Father Richard in this context because, and I mean, this is just my thesis, who who cares? But like, because I don't know him super well, I've only been around him a few times, and we've never had this particular conversation. But I have this whole thesis of Father Richard, you know, because of course he grew up Pentecostal before he became Catholic. And I'm just, I'm personally convinced that you can't really understand him without those early years in the Pentecostal church, because yes, he's very much a Catholic mystic, and you think about Merton and all those kinds of things, but I feel like there's such a Pentecostal shape to Rohr's whole journey, and even the stuff that kind of scandalizes people. I still think in the, the day, there's such a premium for him on experience and of listening to the Holy Spirit in that kind of dynamic way that to me, you know, just doesn't make sense apart from his roots in that way, even though and, you know, in some ways he, he went far from them in terms of, you know, becoming a priest and all that. But I really do feel like that's that's a huge part of what makes Richard Rohr Richard Rohr even is that is, you know, that, that sort of Pentecostal ethos that then I think he brings in to that wonderful kind of Catholic liturgy and structure. Well, I want to maybe bring in a different category here because we've talked kind of uh, the stream of mysticism and Pentecostal theology, which I do think is an interesting mix. And I think there are a lot of similarities with Richard Rohr and how you're talking about expressing your faith. But uh, I hear some people talk about these in very individualistic ways. And that's how I grew up in charismatic. It was like my experience with Jesus and mysticism can be seen that way as a very individualistic experience. How does how does that work for you as you you know we started this with talking about your tribe and the people you wanted to do church with and how that was the driving force for what led you to where you are right now in your position and what you're doing. So how do you how does community fit into this mysticism and Pentecostal theology? Well that's a great question and I think I think in the Pentecostal tradition like rightly understood I think community is everything but to your question, I think there again, I feel like so many expressions of the Pentecostal movement now, which mirror popular evangelicalism, do become so radically individualized. And that was part of those were the kinds of expressions that I did get pretty burned with. You know, I think it wasn't until in some ways when I was in my early 20s that I started to encounter some Pentecostals who sort of embodied a side of the tradition I didn't really know quite the same way, especially like black church Pentecostals, uh, and in, including in North America, but definitely definitely then like around the world. I felt like I came in, into contact with a distinctly Pentecostal vision for like peace and justice that was very, very different. And I think in terms of like now what I know about the early Pentecostal movement, 
That was crucial. And, you know, Pentecostalism very much comes out of the seedbed of the Wesleyan movement, you know, and all that Wesley stuff about social holiness, like all that's in the water. And I think it's very much there in, you know, in the movement. And I think there there is real concern for uh, social transformation and for community transformation. I think that's true of uh, almost across the board in early Pentecostal churches. But there again, I feel like that's part of this whole broader narrative, you know, is that when you start to think about these experiences disembodied from the broader life of a community where there's a context for them, you know, where mm-hmm. the, yeah. hey, what, what, are, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for if not for serving our neighbors? And um, what is the power of the Spirit for if not um, embodying the gospel uh, in an incarnate way in a neighborhood? Um, I still feel like I find that kind of vibrant communal, healthy kind of Pentecostalism, like when I travel. But I admit, especially a lot of places in North America, I feel like it's um, it's it's harder to come by because I think Pentecostalism has largely been reduced to a set of highly individualistic experiences where it's more like, you know, have you got your spirit merit badge or something yeah. <laughs> um, based on whether or not you've spoken in tongues or you've fallen out in the spirit, been slain in the spirit, as we would say, those kind of things. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm hearing, Jonathan, is that you really value your tradition. And there's a lot of great stuff in there that you've learned. You've also, let's say, broadened from that tradition. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Like, like you're not rejecting. It it sounds to me more like as you've experienced life, you maybe have taken some different directions than where you were in maybe your teens and your 20s. So talk about that. I mean, how? why didn't you just stay in the same church you were in? In your teens, like why? Like what's what's happening there? Well, uh, I think a lot of things happen there. I mean, everything from I don't know. I think like uh, I, the most fundamental thing, and this is the through line that probably is bigger than anything else, is that it's like people teach you how to listen to the Holy Spirit and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And yes, I do mean that in a very experiential way. Um, it is, I think, kind of in a feeling, discerning kind of way. And I think it's precisely because I was taught well how to listen to the Holy Spirit that then, you know, when I was exposed to the Anglican Church or to the beauty of the Orthodox Church, you know, these other streams or whatever, that I couldn't deny the witness of the Spirit in these other places. And um, and that, but that is part of the strangest of where I find myself now is it's like, because I know that a lot of the folks from where I come from would see my journey now as being, you know, like some kind of a trader or selling out to the tradition. But I want to say like, hey, if y'all wouldn't have taught me so well how to listen to the Holy Spirit, then I wouldn't have had to leave where some of you guys still are. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, no, 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 the Holy Spirit here, not over there someplace. It's That's all, right. It's, it's our Holy right. Spirit. I don't, do, do you guys know Carlos Rodriguez at all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carlos tells this great story about, because he came up very much in the charismatic movement about uh, a very known charismatic mentor back when he was 20s, because Carlos has changed so much theologically. We had this experience where, like, I've never, I, always, I think about this like once a day, literally, where a guy kind of said to him in like a prophetic way, uh, this, as we would say, kind of giving a word from the Lord, he said, Carlos, the time's going to come when you're going to tell me about the next move of God. And um, when you tell me about the next move of God, I'm going to tell you it's not God. When I say it's not God, it is God. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think like that to me is like, okay, that's a 
that's a, 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 a charismatic mystic at, at, at its finest right there. You yeah. know, that sort of this, this self-awareness to be able to say, I may not be able to go some of the places that you're going to feel led to go, but you need to know that that can still be the leading of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's beautiful to me, you know. But I feel like that's a lot of what my journey has has looked like, is that I do feel like, um, well, since we referenced Father Roar already, um, it's been more of a transcend and include thing for me. Like, I do appreciate where I come from, and I'm not throwing any of it out or under the bus or whatever. But at the same time, I will say, and I feel like this is important for no matter what tradition you kind of come up in, there is no, um, for everything that's beautiful about these diverse expressions of the body of Christ, I don't think there's one that's entirely complete in and of itself. And um, I did need liturgy, and I did need silence, and I did need rhythms that I didn't get in the Pentecostal church. I needed quiet uh, and all of that. I needed the Book of Common Prayer, you know. So it's just, thankfully, I feel like the, as I've come to embrace some of those things in my life, instead of feeling like that somehow that contradicts anything that I learned. It just feels like it, it becomes a more richer, fuller understanding for me of, of what it is to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think of kind of an expanded view of the body of Christ. You know, um, a lot of times as pastors, it would be, well, within our congregation, there are some who are hands and some who are feet and some who are eyes. But if we think about that globally and saying, well, all of these rich traditions have something to offer in terms of how the Spirit is at work in the world— then uh, I think that gives that what you call that kind of expanding and tr- transcending understanding of things. So can, have you wrestled with, though, the one question I often have in that kind of transcending move is how do you hold to conviction and identity in the particularities of your belief while also being open to the universality of the expression, if that makes sense? Well, you know, I think that's I think that's really hard to do for any of us. But, you know, I think like, I actually think the way it happens for most people, I mean, I, I just find myself thinking so often these days of when Jesus, that whole wonderful encounter with uh, Mary and the gardener, when he says, don't cling to me, like, uh, you know, I feel like that so often um, we hit some kind of a crisis where it's just not possible to cling to the God that we knew before. And it typically happens in form of some kind of a crisis, you know. Um, I mean, because I I walked through my own dark night of the soul and went through a very difficult divorce, which would have been inconceivable to me uh, growing up the way that I did. I mean, I was so, again, such a product, the holiness tradition and all that. I feel like in some ways kind of being flat on my back opened me up to God in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise been open. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us, you know, that so that until we have an experience that breaks us open, that would make us need God kind of outside the safety of the containers that we had before, Mm. uh, then we're not going to necessarily embrace it. Because I think so long as the system that we've had has been working for us, then, you know, why look for God elsewhere? Why, you know, why, why be threatened by how the Holy Spirit might be moving outside of where we came from, you know? So I think, like, it often kind of takes something really hard to pry our fingers loose from, you know, holding on to a tradition too tightly. Right, and and in a way, you know, maybe not in a way, but very clearly, you were sort of set up in your life to not be scared to death, maybe, of a notion that what's the Holy Spirit doing now because a lot of people brought up in a context where you just read the Bible and I'll tell you what to do. 
Yeah. Right? So you 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 had openings that, you know, because I guess I guess what I'm hearing is this. You you said earlier that you came to a point where you needed liturgy, you needed quiet, you needed mystery, you needed the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm I'm asking the question because I know people who have come to the same exact point. And so for you, 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 I guess I'm, I'm putting some pieces together here. You needed that because you were faced with something very difficult. And like you, you mentioned your divorce and maybe other elements of suffering that go along with that. Am I right? Am, am, am I tracking with you that, that those are the things that made you like take the next step, so to speak, for you. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, the journey started for me long before that. I mean, I was interested in sacraments and all these things, probably going back to, you know, 20 years ago even. But I think what pushed me over the line was need. I think it was more like a kind of crisis in that way that kind of, you know, just opened me up. And in that regard, you know, now uh, I, I very much see just you know, a lot of grace in that, which not to say, of course, I feel like somehow God directly orchestrated any of that, but that's how God was present to me in some of those things was that, you know, I just think it's a lot like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they say that we thought Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It's like we, <laughs> the the faith that we had before this crucifixion was actually pretty small. Like this had become a little bit, this had become a little bit limited because of course we know from the beginning that the promise was ultimately that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But I think like over time that kind of gets whittled down to something a little more small and tribalistic. And, you know, it takes like disillusionment <laughs> usually to break you open to a larger wider kind of faith. And I think that's absolutely what happened to me. Yeah. I mean, if I remember, I think Father Orr says that it's suffering or love that push you to, let's say, a more contemplative, quiet, you know, mystery, book of common prayer, liturgy kind of thing. Then, I mean, I know that that speaks to me for very different reasons, but that's, it's like, you know, life's really hard. and And these things that I'm used to manipulating to explain my life of faith, they're not, they don't really have any explanatory power right now for me. It's not working, you know? And, and then you, you know, I mean, some people, you know, move away from faith entirely. Others, you know, look to look outside and say, there's got to be something else out there. And you already knew some of those things. You, you became interested in sacraments and liturgy. And, but then it became more existential for you. Because you you needed it, mm-hmm. yeah. What, what did that do? For, what did let's say moving to a more liturgical practice, not just in theory but in practice? What what talk more about what that did for you? Because again, I I just know people listening are in the middle of that, and it's a little bit frightening for some people to move from the sure ground of exegesis to something that transcends that. Well, I don't know if if this would sound like the most helpful thing for someone who's kind of in that place, but I'll tell you the thing that was most shocking to me about in terms of what it did for me is that you have to keep in mind that, and of course, as Pentecostals, you know, we have, we had liturgy, it's just not written down, but in terms of showing up at the same time, at the same place, doing the same thing, it certainly happened. Um, Again, just wasn't supposed to, wasn't supposed to be written. I think what, you know, in my mind, you know, any sort of, you know, written prayers, anything with order, all of that is synonymous with quenching the Holy Spirit. So what what was shocking to me 
is that for all the things about my tradition that I might have valued or um, honored technically, my own experience of it, I always kind of felt like I was an outsider looking in. I mean, the time, the countless hours I spent in camp meeting services and revivals and youth camps with, you know, multi-hour altar calls where everybody's speaking in tongues, but me and everybody is slain out on the floor, but me and I'm the, it looks like a civil war battlefield. And I'm the one person like (laughs) bobbing up here and like, what's wrong with me? What sin is there? Because actually I felt like I was kind of stuck in my head and um, pretty analytical and like I wanted this electricity that people seemed to access around me, but felt like it did just, I didn't quite connect with that the same way. So what was really shocking actually is that I found once I began to embrace this more sacramental way of being that in, you know, coming to the table weekly and some of these more contemplative practices, I felt like I started having some of the more, expressly charismatic experiences that I always craved in the Pentecostal spaces, but didn't have, but could not access personally. I got them (laughs) on the liturgical side because I think like I wasn't obsessed with that anymore. I didn't need it too much. It wasn't a merit badge, you know, it's like, so it was, but you know, but that was my fear going into it was like, well, if I get into this too much, you know, then maybe I won't be as open to the power of God. It turned out to be the opposite of that, you know, like I, but that, that seems hilarious now, but I definitely remember even as a pastor. Well, isn't that ironic though, Jonathan, that the tradition that taught you about, let's say the centrality of the spirit in the life of faith in saying that a sacramental or contemplative life sort of quenches the spirit is actually limiting the spirit. Right. Like, like, well, the spirit doesn't work that way. Right. But but it's, it's the other way around, too, because people who grow up evangelical, I mean, I think Jared and I would both, you know, there was a time when I'd say this Pentecostal stuff is stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm like 23. What do I know? <laughs> you know, but, but you know, it, I think it works both ways. Everyone, maybe we all sort of think that we have cornered the market on God. <laughs> yeah. And if people aren't doing it our way, but so, I mean, that's, I find that very encouraging that you're... Like you said, it's transcend and include, and the things that you learned are going with you as you move towards, you know, as you did move towards a more sacramental way of being, and I think that's fantastic. Well, thank you for that, and I tell you, I I love what you're saying, and it so resonates with me on different levels, because I'm just thinking about how I've, I've, I've actually, the last few weeks, somehow, I keep, because I, I meet people on both ends of the continuum all the time, I meet these more... Pentecostal charismatic folks that are becoming liturgical and liturgical people who are waking up to these these kinds of experiences of the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm coming to just think, you know, I think that we're somehow able to discern the presence of God more in any experience that is other to us. So like if it's the more foreign it is, the more maybe open we are to the surprise of God. And so I think like, but but then what's funny about that is that we always think like, well, we've got God over here until we don't feel like we do. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, God wasn't back here. God's over there. <laughs> and then, oh, no, God's not really back in those Pentecostal spaces. God's here at the Episcopal Church. You know, <laughs> like we just go back and forth doing that all the time. Oh, no, God's not, wasn't really back over there. He's actually here, you know. <laughs> when in reality, you know, it's just, it's, more like whatever I think is more foreign to us, that's often what will more collapse, you know, into like some kind of open sense of the holy. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, unfortunately, we're, we are coming to the end of our time, but I, I love the idea of ending on that, that vision of, of maybe where we try to pin God down and God refuses to be pinned down and that, that transcendence and inclusion note. But maybe, it, you know, people resonate and want to continue to follow in this conversation with you, Jonathan. Where can people find you? What, what are the projects? What are the things do you have going on? Um, and yeah, where can people find you? So my website is jonathanmartinwords.com. Um, I have a podcast called The Zeitcast, which comes out every day, Monday through Friday, um, both in audio form on iTunes and Spotify, but it's also uh, on YouTube as well for people who want the video of that. So um, yeah, look for the Zeitcast. And then on Twitter, uh, at the boy on the bike um, is always a good way to keep in touch as well. Boy on the bike. Explain that. You know, it's funny because it's so connected with everything we've been talking about. I'll give the shortest version of the, of the story I could give. When I was eight years old, I would ride around in circles in the, the cul-de-sac in my, on my bike, and I would have, I was making up stories and kind of imagining and nothing that I would have consciously thought of as prayer then. But now, looking back, I think it was these were kind of early experiences of the presence of God for me. I forgot about that mm. until I was in my early 30s, and for the first time in like 20-something years, found myself on a bike at a beach when I was riding in circles on a cul-de-sac and started weeping. And it's like something brought me back to that experience. And so it's kind of like mm. um, the, the, be, the being the boy on the bike for me became my shorthand way of saying um, that's the boy I really am underneath. You know, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a writer. I'm not a whatever. I'm still just this kid on the bike who's full of wonder, you know, and is here for the ride and wants to create and make stuff. And like, like that, that's my truest identity. Any other, any other project? Um, I am working on my third book right now, um, with Zondervan, but it will come out, but it will come out summer 2020. So a little bit longer on that, but the Zeitcast is getting, most of the attention. Oh, and I, I, well, I guess we referenced this indirectly earlier. Um, the Table OKC, um, if anybody wants to swing by and see us here, you know, we do weekly services and um, having a wonderful time building that community as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for uh, stopping in and having a chat with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a good time, guys. See ya. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for that episode. Two things before you go real quick. One, I will be speaking at First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri, giving the annual Shepherd Lecture there Saturday, October 19th at 10 a.m., and then also preaching on Sunday. So if you're in the area there, um, October 19th and 20th, would love to see you there at First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri. And secondly, we definitely want to re-emphasize, because we are shameless about plugging our stuff, that we have a new book out. It's a new old book. I've said that a few times. But do go to uh, anywhere, Amazon, thebiblefornormalpeople.com, and look up our book, Genesis for Normal People. It's the second edition, so make sure you get the second edition. And it has a study guide at the end. You can go through it with groups. But definitely check it out. We'd love for you to pick up a copy as we further this conversation about what is the Bible and what do we do with it. Thanks. We'll see you next time.